I ask that you turn with me today in your Bibles to our text, which comes from the Gospel of Mark, as we continue to proceed further in our study. And today, we are looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 30. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 30. Brothers and sisters, hear with me then the reading of God's Word. And Jesus went out with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told Him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Thus far as the reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, if you remember in Mark Chapter 1, verse 1, when we began all the way back, I think in June or July, we started off reading that first verse that said, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is kind of like Mark's thesis. And so everything that comes after has been purposely placed and organized to support and to demonstrate what Mark has said even if he doesn't explicitly come out and say that this is the purpose for which he is writing. Now we have to remember that Mark's Gospel is the first of its kind. Right? There is no such thing as a Gospel prior to Mark's. And so he's penning a new literary genre. One that resembles ancient biographies and yet is also very different. Right? What Mark is writing is is what might be called a witness document. So it's more than a biography. It's, it's a proclamation of the person of Jesus Christ. And Mark is calling on the readers to believe in this one whom he is writing about. Now other Gospel writers actually come out and tell you what the purpose of their writing is, don't they? If you remember John in his Gospel, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. I submit to you that in fact, this is why Moses wrote. This is why the prophets wrote. This is why Paul pens his epistles. This is why the Gospels are written. It is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that in believing Him, you may have everlasting life. And now in our text today, we've reached the pinnacle or the the climax for everything that Mark has written up to this point. Everything that he has written is for this moment. Everything about Jesus' teachings. Everything about Jesus' works. All of Jesus' proclamations. That He is Lord of the Sabbath. That He has the authority to forgive sin. It is all for this moment. And now, it is time for the disciples to either profess faith in Christ or to not. 
by answering the question, Who do you say that I am? Remember, we said, brothers and sisters, or I've said many times before, that this is the, the turning point in the Gospel. Right? Everything before this, everything leading up to this, was demonstrating to the apostles that He is the Christ. Then we have our text today. And now following this, everything after is going to be demonstrating to them what it entails to be the Messiah. And so Mark situating this question in the middle of his Gospel as a climactic turning point serves to emphasize to us the significance of this question. And the significance of this question, I submit to you, is, is so great right? that whether you are man or woman, young or old, whether you live to be 10 years or 100 years, this is the most important question any of you will ever answer in your entire life. We are constantly throughout our lives having to answer tough questions. We are confronted with tough questions. Right? Who, who should I marry? You know, when I get married, how many children should we have? What should we do about their education? Uh, where should I work? Where should we live? Who should I vote for? Right? All important questions. But in questions that no longer matter once you die. Right? When you die, there is no more marriage. So there is no more having children. There is no more having to worry about where to send them off to school. There is no more worrying about where to live or where to work or who to vote for. That terminates at your death. But who you say Christ is, this has not only temporal, but eternal ramifications for your life, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Who you say Christ is means life or death. It means eternal glory or eternal punishment. It means being in the gracious, loving presence of Christ forever or being outside of His gracious, loving presence forever. It means being represented by the first Adam or being represented by the second Adam. It means being a servant of Satan or a servant of Christ. It means bondage or freedom. It means misery or happiness. And no one, and I mean no one, gets to skip out on answering this question. Who do you say that I am? And it is the answer to that question that separates all of humanity. Either you are a believer or an unbeliever. Either you have Christ or you do not. Either you are for Christ or you are against Christ. Either you have everything in Christ or you have nothing apart from Christ. And so with this being said, we are going to turn our attention for the remainder of this morning into the question, who do people say Christ is? And so we're going to look at this under two points this morning. The first point is, who do people say Christ is? Who do people say Christ is? Our second point will be, who do you say Christ is? Who do you say that Christ is? So point one, who do people say Christ is? 
So we're told in verse 27, Jesus is walking along with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? Now, as we've seen thus far, this has been a, a very difficult question to find the right answer for, hasn't it? Right? Even those closest to him haven't answered correctly. If you remember back in chapter 4 of Mark's Gospel, as they're crossing the sea and they have the, the windstorm and the waters are raging, what happens after Jesus calms the storm? The disciples look at one another and say what? Who then is this? That even the winds and the seas obey Him. They didn't know. They weren't quite sure. And so if those closest to Him weren't sure who He is, we can see how those who weren't with Christ every single day had a trouble identifying who He was. And so the apostles respond to Jesus' question. But this is a question that will serve a greater purpose that we will come back to later. But they answer Jesus' question by saying what other people were saying about Him. And so they say, some are saying that you are John the Baptist. Some are saying that you are Elijah. And others are saying that you are one of the prophets. Well, what does this tell us about what people thought about Jesus? Well, it tells us that they didn't know Him correctly, right? But yet, they knew that He was different from everybody else. Right? We see people's understanding of Jesus has grown since the beginning. Right? No longer is He just Mary's son or no longer is He just a miracle worker. People are saying, well, we think Him to be a prophet at least. Someone sent from God. But what else are they saying if Jesus was John the Baptist or Elijah or a prophet? What do all those men have in common? They're all dead. They're all dead men. So what are people saying if Jesus must be John the Baptist or Elijah, one of the prophets? They're saying Jesus must be them in resurrected form. What does that tell us? They couldn't describe Jesus. They couldn't explain Jesus by natural terms. He said He has to be. Someone resurrected it. Now if you remember in chapter 6, it was, it was Herod who said that Jesus was John the Baptist. Remember, he heard about what Jesus was doing. He was holy and righteous and he remembers John the Baptist that he put him to death unjustly. And what does he say? He's come back for me, right? This is judgment upon me. It's got to be John the Baptist who's resurrected from the dead. Why would people believe that Jesus is Elijah? Well, if you remember that the Jewish people are anticipating the return, the physical return of Elijah. If you remember in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, we're told, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. But what is it that Jesus says about the physical return of Elijah? In Matthew chapter 11, verse 13 and 14, he says, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Right? Jesus says, with the coming of John the Baptist, right? the return of Elijah has been fulfilled. And so in saying Jesus is Elijah, though, what are the people saying? They're saying that Jesus isn't the Messiah. They're saying he's like 
Elijah, who was a forerunner, a herald for the Messiah, but he wasn't the Messiah. What else are people saying? They're saying that he is like one of the prophets. Why would they be saying that he's like one of the prophets? Remember, right? the prophets were those ordained by God. They were given speech. They were able to go speak out authoritatively. And isn't this what Jesus or people recognized about Jesus' ministry? Right in Mark chapter 1, what's the first thing Jesus does? He walks into the synagogue in Capernaum and he starts to proclaim the word. And we're told people were astonished. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Right? And so we see that people had a, a very high view of Jesus. And yet what we see here is what we see really throughout every era of human history since the first advent of Christ. And that is this, that people are constantly getting Christ wrong. They're constantly getting Him wrong. People think highly about Jesus, but never highly enough. Probably, if any of us here was mistaken for the resurrected John the Baptist, or the resurrected Elijah, or one of the prophets, it would probably be a great and mighty compliment for us, wouldn't it be? But for Jesus, it was a great insult. Right? Elijah, John the Baptist, the prophets, they were sinners in need of a Savior. And Jesus has come and He is the sinless Savior. And don't we see this time and time again even today? The, the Mormons, right? the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Muslims. By many standards, people would say they seem to have a pretty high view of Jesus. Many secularists today Right, Those who, who don't believe in Him as the Messiah, but they would say, yeah, He was a historical person. You know, he, he was a good moral man. He cared about the poor and the needy. He's someone that we ought to emulate. Right? They would seem to have a pretty high view of Jesus as well. But we have to understand, brothers and sisters, that, that any view short of Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is nothing but wicked, evil, and disgusting lies aimed not at exalting Christ, but those confessions are aimed at diminishing who Jesus is. John, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, says this, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. Earlier, earlier in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, John says this, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Right? And so everyone who does not profess Jesus as Christ is a liar and the truth is not in them. It doesn't matter how much people think they know about Christ or how well they think of Him. If they do not believe Him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, they do not love Him, they deny Him, and the wrath of God abides upon them. This goes for people who sit in Christian churches in the pews and who are only willing to profess a Christ whom they have fashioned in their own minds. This goes for those who think they can remain silent as Christians, that they can be Christians quietly. Like, I can believe in Jesus in my heart, but I'm never going to say it to others because I don't want to offend anyone by the message of the cross. This is the same thing as denying Christ. 
What is Jesus asking the disciples? He is saying, who do people say that I am? He's asking them, who do you say that I am? We have to understand that to believe in Jesus is to profess publicly before others our Christian faith. You can't be a Christian in silence. I know that there are some who don't want to endanger what they have. right? They don't want to lose things for the sake of truth. And so they remain silent. But you cannot count yourself a Christian if you are unwilling to profess your faith no matter what ensues. Right? Christ does not live in your heart if you feel some sort of shame or unwillingness to praise, honor, and glorify Him with your words. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, So everyone who acknowledges Me before men, I also will acknowledge before My Father in heaven. But whoever denies Me before men, I also will deny before My Father in heaven. Now we all know that peer pressure is a real thing, don't we? Peer pressure is a real thing. It's hard to be the only one in a, in a segment of the population or among your friends who believes one thing when everyone else is saying something different. I'll give you an example. Not to pick on a former president, but if you remember back in 2008, President Obama, he was opposed to same-sex marriage, wasn't he? Well, what happened four years later in 2012, as soon as the cultural tide began to turn in favor, all of a sudden now he's evolved. The same was true of President Clinton. Around that same time, he came out in support of same-sex marriage, even though in 1996 he was the one who signed into law the Defense of Marriage Act. And so, was it just coincidence that these two men who profess to be Christians who go to church, abandon the Christian doctrine of marriage, the one Jesus Himself teaches, just so, just so happens when all of a sudden the pressure begins to mount? No, it's not a coincidence. But what it shows is that they love their lives more than they love Christ. Right? They thought more highly about their legacy in U.S. history than they thought about Christ. They cared more about what the people around them thought than they cared about Christ. Right? That was their opportunity to profess Christ. But in that moment, their response demonstrated what they truly thought about Christ. And that was that He was not the Messiah. That He is not the Son of God. And now in our text today, the apostles are at this moment. This exact same moment they find themselves in. And remember I said that we were going to come back to why He asked them the first question. What the real reason was. And so we're there now. And so what's the real reason that he asked him, what do others say about me? Well, it's obviously not because Jesus didn't know for himself and he was just really inquisitive because he really wanted to understand. No, Jesus asked, what do others say about me? To see if it influenced the apostles. He wanted to see if they were going to succumb to the peer pressure of what everyone around them was saying. He wants to see if they cared more about fitting in and not being ostracized by their peers than they did loving Him? Did they love Him? Did they trust Him? More than, than, than loving and trusting in other things. As we've seen, 
And as many of us have discovered in our own lives, right? It's easy to be swayed by the opinion of others. When everyone else is believing something, it's easy to cause us to doubt. Or just out of cowardice. And for the sake of living in peace, the apostles could have just said, yeah, we agree with everyone else. Right? You are, we believe you to be John. Or we believe you to be Elijah. But what was their response? Well, this takes us to point number two, which is, who do you say Christ is? Let us look together then at verse 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Now we see they weren't swayed by the opinion of others. Right? They didn't follow the crowd. They answered correctly. But what does it mean to say that Jesus is the Christ? Right? Christ is the Greek word of the Hebrew word which we pronounce Messiah. And Christ means anointed. And so what significance does anointing have for the Israelites? Great significance, right? Because those who were anointed were those who got ordained for a particular function as a prophet, a priest, or a king. And those who were ordained to these offices were ordained with oil, right? They were anointed with oil. Elijah anoints Elisha with oil as his successor in prophetic authority, right? Moses anoints Aaron and his sons with oil to be priests. Samuel, Saul, David were anointed as kings over Israel. And so it could be no different for Jesus. He had to be anointed as prophet, priest, and king. Now, Jesus' ordination to this office was known from all of eternity by God, but it had to be confirmed to us. It had to be confirmed to us. And we see this in Mark chapter 1, right? When the, the Spirit descends upon the Lord like a dove. Right? This is the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which the anointing of oil in the Old Testament signified. So now Jesus has been anointed by the Holy Spirit And now He assumes His office as our prophet and our priest and our king. But what you have to understand is the anointing with the Holy Spirit instead of the oil demonstrates that Jesus is not just a prophet, priest, and king to a greater degree than others, but He is prophet, priest, and king of another kind than others. Right? As Messiah, it meant you had to be anointed with something that far exceeded the anointing of every other prophet, priest, and king before. And so Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And it was this anointing with the Holy Spirit that was a proclamation from God in heaven to us on earth that Jesus' Messiahship has now begun. When the Spirit came down and descended upon Jesus and anointed Him, It was a declaration from heaven. The Father telling us, my son's Messiahship has now begun. And so when Peter and the apostles whom he was speaking for say that he is Christ, what they are confessing faith in is that Jesus is the great high priest, that he is the prophet, that he is a king. What they are 
professing faith in is that they believe that Jesus was ordained by God to be Redeemer and Savior. What they were confessing in saying that Jesus is Christ is that they believed that everything that was written prior is now fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. That is what their profession says. And yet, in Matthew's Gospel, he has a a parallel account. And he includes another uh, another bit of saying from Peter. In Matthew's Gospel, he says that Peter not only says Jesus is the Christ, but he also says He is the Son of the living God. Right Here, Matthew emphasizes even more what it means to confess Christ. Right, It's not just a confession of who Jesus is on earth as man, but it is also a confession of who Jesus is eternally. It is a confession that He is the Son of the living God who Himself is eternally God. This is the confession that Peter and the apostles are making today. That Jesus is not a moral teacher. That He's not a lesser deity. But He is truly man and He is truly God. Peter likewise confesses faith in the incarnation in this confession. Fulfilling what the angel Gabriel said would occur. When, if you remember in Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel comes before Mary and he says, you are going to conceive a son. You shall call his name Jesus. And in verse 32, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high God. Right? Peter fulfills this in his declaration that Jesus is the son of the living God. Right? Peter is acknowledging God is with us. Is this, brothers and sisters, what we declare? That Jesus is truly man and truly God. That God is with us. Is this the Jesus whom you have placed your faith, your hope, and your trust in? You see, Mark records that Jesus asked first, what do others say about me? And then asked them, well, what do you say about me? I think likewise he does that. To say, is that what they say about me? Now forget about it. What do you say about me? Because that is the only thing that matters for your soul. And I think Jesus is saying that same thing to all of us today. Forget what mom and dad say. right? Forget what husband and wife say. You are not accepted or rejected based on the faith of your parents. But you are accepted or rejected based on your faith and who you say I am. And that is the question that Mark is asking us all today. Who do you say that Jesus is? And so what then should we learn from this confession of faith? What should we learn from this confession of faith? First, that a true believer is one willing to confess Christ openly even if it's the unpopular thing to do. In the book of Acts, isn't this what got Peter thrown in prison? Isn't this what got Stephen stoned? You see, we must learn from their confession that a a true believer confesses Christ and is unwilling to compromise on the truth regardless of what happens. Right? Peter and the other apostles knew confessing Christ was not going to go over well with the scribes and the Pharisees, but they didn't care. The truth was more important to them. Confessing and believing in Christ was more important. You see, brothers and sisters, I understand that in this country it's hard to to understand this because we don't we don't really go through things right we don't suffer much 
Right? But Jesus says, blessed is the one who is persecuted for my sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But we don't really know what that's like. But others in this world, we have to understand, do know exactly what that's like. They know what the apostles had to go through. Because they experience things just like that today. And actually, I want to share with you one story. This past week, I've, I was listening to a sermon by Dr. Joel Beakey, who is president at the Puritan Theological Seminary in, in Michigan. And uh, this was a sermon on a different topic, but he's talking about persecution. And he, he tells this riveting story that brought goosebumps to me. And as I thought about our text today, I said, I've got to tell our congregation about this so that they can understand truly what's going on in the world outside of our safe space. Because I'm not sure that we're going to remain a safe space for much longer. And so Dr. Beakey tells this story. He's at a conference. And he's introduced to this man. And this man is from Turkey. And this man begins to tell Dr. Beakey his story. And he says, I'm paraphrasing all of this. He says to Dr. Beakey that he grew up a Muslim in Turkey, which is a Muslim country. And at the age of 18 he runs into two American tourists who preach to him the gospel and give him a copy of the New Testament and invite him to church. For a while, he wasn't sure what to do. Right? He read a little bit. But he understood that to convert to Christianity meant betraying his country, being disowned by his family, possibly death. And so he ends up deciding to go one day. And he goes to this church and it's an underground church and he brings one trusted friend with him and they go and they're sitting in the middle and they're so afraid that someone might just come up and start to stab him that they go and they sit in the back of the pew with their backs against the wall so that they can see everything that's going on and over time they they read and read more and they they come back to church and they go to bible studies and then one day they they go back to church and at the end of church a gentleman who's in the church invites everyone back to his house. And so they all get up and they all go back to the house. Lo and behold, they did not understand that this man was a police informant. And he brings them back to a home where police are waiting for them. And the police initially seem very nice and friendly. And they say, if you just say the Muslim prayer, Allah is the only God and Muhammad is his prophet, we will let you go free. And so the man who was the informant, who they didn't know was the informant at that time, stands up and he says it, and they let him go free. And then what happens? Maybe peer pressure kicks in, and a, f- a few more guys stand up, and they say the prayer. Right? Allah is the only God, and Muhammad is his prophet. And they walk out as well. And then this Turkish man, his friend, it's his turn, and he stands up and he says, Jesus is my Savior. And I will die for him. He is beaten. Now it's the Turkish man's turn to stand up. And he stands up and he actually says, he was ready to to say the Muslim prayer and just get out of there. But he said he felt like someone put their, their hand over his mouth and wouldn't let him say those words. And so he is beaten as well. 
And for 10 days they are tortured. Beaten, teeth knocked out. Even something called coffin therapy that I never heard of before. Where they, they fill a coffin full of water. And they put you inside and they close the top. So that you feel like you are drowning. And they say, just knock on it and we will let you out as long as you say the Muslim prayer. And these men refuse to do so. And this man from Turkey now is a pastor in modern day Smyrna. But as I listened to that story, I couldn't help but think you know, that Jesus, through all that, is constantly asking him, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I'm not exaggerating when I say that I don't think that we are that far off of this. Not torture, not beating, not coffin therapy. But I think imprisonment and loss of freedom is not far from our country. If any of you have been listening to the news lately, uh, Christian news, you would understand what's going on in Canada right now. Right? There is a pastor in Ontario who was a, a graduate of Master Seminary. He is in Ontario, Canada right now, and he is imprisoned because he refused to shut the doors of his church because of COVID. Right? I think there's 4 million people living in Ontario. 1,800 people, I believe, have passed away. That's like 0.004% of the population. But Canada has allowed the health people to make up laws as they go, and so they say, no church. And so like most of us, he abided right in the beginning because we didn't know what was going on. But then by June or July, he said, nah, the people are suffering. They're, they're backsliding. They're, they need nourishment. And so he opens the doors to the church. And after a few months, people tell on him. And then he gets arrested. But he was let out right away. And so what does he do? He goes back the next Sunday and continues to preach. And now they've arrested him. They've thrown him in jail. And what they are saying to him is, we will not let you out until you sign a document saying you will not step foot in that church and preach the gospel as long as we say. And he is refusing to do it. He has a wife and children at home. But he is refusing to do it. And so he still sits in jail today. We have to understand that's not too far away from here, especially with President Biden and his Equality Act and those type of things, right? They can come shut us down. Tell us if we say certain things, we can't meet together any longer. But we have to understand, brothers and sisters, that regardless if you are dealing with large trials like they are, small trials that we might go through in life. We are constantly, our profession of faith is constantly being tested for its authenticity. It constantly is. Jesus is saying in, in those times, do you really believe that I am the Messiah, the Son of God? All right, let's see if this is a, what, you really, what you really think, what you really believe through this trial. Will you still continue to profess me publicly and openly? And Paul says to the church in Corinth in chapter First um, Corinthians chapter eleven verse nineteen, there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. Right? We're going through these things. We will suffer trials, so that you may see that we may see who is genuine and who is not. And so if you profess Christ, brothers and sisters, we must realize that it can't be a one-time deal. It's not just saying His name once and never again. 
but rather the totality of our lives ought to be a daily profession of faith in Christ. A confession of faith in Christ, though, is not only words. It is words, but it's not only words. It's also deeds. Confession of faith is also deeds, right? To profess faith in Christ is to pray to Him constantly. Right? To, pr- or to pray to the Father in the name of the Son demonstrates that we believe Jesus to be our mediator. We demonstrate that as we pray in the name of the Son. Our profession of faith is also displayed by coming to church and by fellowshipping with the saints. Right? Your profession of faith is also seen right? when you profess Christ in your home to your children. Right? When you profess Christ in your home to your family and friends. Your profession of faith is seen if you are brought between uh, before the, 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 the state or the magistrate. Right? Professing Christ no matter the consequence. Also, I want us all to see that professing faith in Christ also means becoming a member of a church. Right? When you become a member of a church, you are brought up before the congregation for all to see and you profess to everyone in joining that you believe in Jesus Christ, that He is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. And then lastly, confessing Christ means maintaining your faith in suffering and in death. Now, none of, the, none of us will, will do this perfectly, will we? As we'll see next week, Peter already fails. He already doesn't fully recognize what it is he has just said because he's going to be rebuked by Jesus next week. Right? But professing faith in Christ imperfectly is different than not maintaining your profession of faith at all. And then what do we see in verse 30? After their profession, Jesus tells them to go and to tell no one. Right? Jesus doesn't want them to, to stir up excitement thinking that this earthly Messiah is going to set up an earthly kingdom. Right? He says, don't do that. There's much more I want to reveal about myself. And we will see this as the weeks unfold. And so as we draw to a close, then I simply want to leave you with the question, right? the ultimate question, right? knowing that Jesus is the only way to eternal life, that He Himself is life, that He Himself grants life because of His life, death, and resurrection conquering sin, death, and the devil. Knowing what it means to confess Christ now, knowing His humiliation and exaltation, knowing His words and His works, I ask you here today that as you walk out, as you go home, as you sit down to think about, answer the question yourself today. Who do you say Christ is? Bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have revealed Your Son to us. For those who believe, for we understand that we could not see Christ apart from You granting us eyes to see. We pray, Father, that You would grant us clearer vision of who Christ is that You would grant us a better understanding of what it is that we are confessing when we confess Christ. We pray that You would give us boldness and confidence in faith, that we would not shrink back or feel any shame, but boldly profess the name of Christ whenever appropriate. We ask, Father, that You would grant to those in our church today who have not confessed Christ as we 
read today as the apostles have, that, Father, you would grant to them faith in Christ all the same, that they might understand that Jesus is truly man and truly God, the sinless Savior of the world, and that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, we ask that you bring that reality to the forefront of our mind. Cause us to understand and to empathize and to sympathize and to pray for those who are actually suffering in ways that we do not. And please, Father, we ask that you ready us for the time when it comes when we have to suffer as such that we would not deny Christ, but that we would suffer any persecution or any shame for your name. So, Father, we come before you this day asking all these things. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.